I don't think any of us had this in our predictions, and that was just last week. But Canonical has a job posting up on their careers page for a, quote, Linux desktop gaming product manager. And the description reads, we're excited to create the role of desktop gaming product manager to make Ubuntu the best Linux desktop for gaming. We will work with partners in the silicon world to ensure the latest graphic drivers and tweaks are built in for optimal frame rates and latency, as well as with partners in the gaming industry to ensure that mechanisms such as anti-cheat capabilities are available to ensure fairness and product availability. Where is this coming from, first of all? And second of all, what strikes me about this is I was just thinking we're getting awfully close to the deck and no major game has announced anti-cheat compatibility. Does this feel like a response to the deck being arch, you think? Oh, I don't know. Response seems like maybe a lot. You know, you'd think there'd have to be a little more going on behind the scenes than just that, but it, it certainly feels like maybe it's playing into more of these machinations we don't quite see behind the various curtains. Hmm. It is weird this the way this job post is written. Like, you know, half of it's talking about some of those like this graphic stuff and software development, but then there's also a lot of the phrase go to market. So how, oh. how do you find someone who's software development experience, really interested in, in open source of that, and then also has an MBA? I guess that's what you need. <laughs> friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome to our first Sunday episode. We're here together. It's nice to see your smiling faces. Coming up on the show today, we've been waiting all summer. It's a new year, and it's time for a new server. With some essential help from our community, we are starting off on a major migration. We're going to tell you more about it. You know some of it. We're going to tell you the complete picture in this episode. We've got two servers, new networking, a totally new balls to the walls, don't do as we do kind of setup. So you're joining us today mid gallop into a migration and we'll give you our first major progress report. And then we'll round out the show with the emails and the pics. You know, we've gone through and done our, done our uh, pre-show like discussion on what would be the right pick. I think I have one that's going to be good for the timing, so I'm vouching for this week's pick. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, the first pick of a new year is serious business. Yeah, yeah. So before we go any further, we got to do the business of the show. we got to say hello to our virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings. Virtual lug. Hello, hello. Hello. Good evening. Hello. Namaskaram. Sunday. Hello. Welcome to the Sunday episode. We're trying out the old Jitsi today. Should be interesting to see how that goes. Nice to see some of their faces. They're like real people. It is. Wow. And <laughs> I mean, they did not bat an eye at following us right over here. Yeah. Well, it helped that we kept dropping our connection to Mumble. That didn't, uh, that didn't change it. As you probably guessed, I'm out of the woods. Made it out of the woods. Yeah. You didn't die. An yeah. Icy death. Good work. So if you didn't catch last week's episode, I got stranded out in the woods after the Pacific Northwest got slammed with an unusually cold winter storm and didn't have enough fuel, didn't have enough propane, didn't have enough water. Tanks were full. It's freezing my, uh, you know what's off. And our ideal scenario is we were going to get out of there after last week's show on Tuesday. We didn't make it out till Thursday. Ooh. Yeah. Now, the nice thing was, is the longer we stayed out in the woods, the more we kind of learned to live out there. Still real hard on the rig. And there has been damage to our water system. But uh, what, what happened is, is that a bunch of ice formed on top of our slides, like thick ice, much thicker than I realized. And it must have been a combination of just melt and then refreezing that just made this thing huge over time. And so it was hours per slide to get that ice off. Wow. Took forever. Of course, I tried to not do it and just saw it. See, well, maybe it'll break when it comes in. No, no, you could drive a car on this ice. (laughs) It was like that thick. So we had to like chip each slide. It took hours and, you know, it's 20 degrees, 15 degrees outside. 
There's only so many, and it, it's right at winter solstice too. So there's only so many You've hours, got a few of hours of daylight to do the work out there. You can only be out in the cold for so long. We're making no solar, right? Uh, it was just worst case scenario, and uh, so we didn't actually make it out till Thursday. And then that evening, another huge snowstorm came in. We, if we hadn't made it out that day, we would have been trapped again that evening. It was like down to the wire. Yeah, you probably would have just gotten out now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because it's just now gone for the first time since Christmas. It's gone above freezing. So, yeah. But then, you know, uh, fast forward, like we're here at the studio Saturday last night, uh, day after New Year's. Even though Wes has friends in town, he still came, spent the day up here, brought Brent up. Brent's in from uh, town. Heck uh, wait, yes. Brent's in from out of town. Nice to have out Brent of here. country. <laughs> right. Even. Right. You had quite the. Experience. I had a saga. I think it's uh, a podcast length story in itself that I won't go into details, but it took me, let's say, two days to get here. Yeah. You had to end up crossing the border a total of five times. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> customs got to know me really well. <laughs> and that's not usually a good thing. Also, you learned almost the hard way that if you buy something in the duty free store and then bring it back into your own country, there's like a 200% fee for that. Yeah, it turns out they don't tell you that when you buy these things. I guess it's an edge case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just be aware of that, listener. Rent will save you some money there. Um, so before we get into our service stuff today, I just want to mention that. We do have a meetup on the 30th planned at the studio here in the Seattle area. It's up in the town of Arlington. So it's about 45, 50 minutes north of Seattle. And we're going to do phase two of the server launch. We're going to have a get together potluck here. Just have a good old time, do a live lup and uh, hang out at the JB studio, assuming that um, it's safe to do so. You know, we just will watch all that. But so uh, we'll have more information on that soon. But if you're in the Pacific Northwest area, Start making your plans for that. But all right, let's talk about server stuff. Because you guys know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, we have this really super reliable super micro box that has been around forever. We bought it used. It's really done good work for us, right? I mean, it sure has. been the bedrock of the studio for a few years now. And it's lived through some real hot summers because it's a garage that has an exposed roof. And it's also where the afternoon sun is. So it gets really hot in there, even for the Seattle area. You know, it could be over 100 and something degrees in there in the summer. Survived multiple OS transitions, many Arch updates. Yeah, it started life as a free NAS box. Then it became a Fedora box. And then it became an Arch box. And there are legacy artifacts of that going all the way back to the free NAS installation. It's pretty funny. And uh, Alan Jude set up our original ZFS setup on free NAS. And uh, so that has been carried forward through all those installs as well, which is something we're going to kind of finally modernize and update on, which we'll get into that in a little bit. But I mean, it really has served us well. It's loud. It takes a ton of power and it's been through a lot of seasons. And this last summer, it started hard locking on us a few times. Probably the most fatal one was during the final few weeks of the road trip when we were all AFK and it went down. And I had like some backup infrastructure on Linode because we knew it was sketch. And that was the only thing that kind of saved the day on that. So we realized goal number one when we go for a new server is stability. We got to make sure this thing's not locking up on us. We want to have remote management. We want to be able to figure out what's happening even when we're not in the studio. And along with that, we want to build like a cooling box for it in the spring and all that kind of stuff. That was like, and, and probably, you know, obviously, something that's just will last us a few more years too. It's not just reliability. It's also sustainability for a few more years. Yeah. Right. We kind of 
putting some event, getting getting some work in now to forestall having to do this again sometime soon. Yeah, you know, I, I love getting four or five years out of something like this if we can't even longer, which we definitely did with this last box. So that's like 50% of our goals right there. The other 50% of our goal is to increase the available storage that we have. We archive flack versions of our show productions on there. We archive special projects on there. Anytime we go to a community event, if we record audio or we film it, we archive all the source material on there. There's also a media collection for uh, people in the studio that's on there. There's, you know, I have some family stuff on there, like videos and things like that. There's a ton of our archives so from the object storage up in Linode. What uh, you guys, we've talked about this before, but just as a recap, we run uh, Nextcloud up on Linode. Object storage is the back end. And then to prevent excessive growth, we just carve off every few months some of that and we throw it on the physical server here in the studio that has disks. And that way we keep what's in object storage to like three or four months. And then anything older than that lives in an archive storage, kind of like a cold storage here at the studio. Then we run Nextcloud on each of them and, and it helps us manage that. And it's really nice. And so we need to be able to grow that as well. So right now the current system has two terabytes free. It's run an arch. We haven't updated it since the last time we updated it on the show. <laughs> it's been a few months. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's definitely due for some updates. Yeah, I think so. Let's, let's just, let's just see here. How many? Huh? You think, uh, um, I, you know, it'd be really dumb to do one more update just because we're, we're in the middle of a migration. We yeah, don't no, we don't need down. to update it. But boy, I tell you what, there was a second there. I'm like, let's do it. Let's kick off the millionaire. Let's update this sucker. But no, no, this is not that time. So we wanted to move over to something that gave us additional capacity, some runway for storage. Ideally, although this is a long shot, ideally something that gets us through the rest of the year because buying high capacity SAS hard drives right now is, is like buying them made out of gold or Bitcoin even. It's ridiculous. We were looking at prices last night for even just, you know, maybe two terabytes. Some of the drives are going for nearly $800 right now. It's just not happening. Too much. So we wanted to try to get as much storage runway as possible with this migration. Uh, and did you get the updates there? The number there? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, well, you know, hey, net, net upgrade size, only 24 megs, but uh, 229 packages, three gigs of updates. Three gigs of updates and a 24 megabyte net size. That just makes me smile. You know, that's just so damn impressive. We'll miss you, Arch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it really was a matter of getting new hardware trying to get the right price to performance ratio and then finding time to set it up and finding a new physical spot to put it that we could build a box around later. You know, it's as with a lot of these things, it's an exercise in engineering compromises, right? Like we have the resources we have entirely, you know, thanks to the amazing community that we have. And we're trying to figure out like for our particular needs, which, you know, it's kind of an odd combination of things. And it's not necessarily, it's not the thing hosting the shows. It's not the stuff, you know, if it, if something happens or we need to do some work on it, that's okay. But it is still, you know, important to the studio. Yeah, it's not in the pipeline of production, but it's in the support area of like infrastructure, which is like a second tier of infrastructure. So it works kind of good for this sort of thing. It's definitely, and it, it's something we definitely have in production. So if it breaks it, you know, we're, we feel it. When I was looking at buying something, you know, I was looking at like a thousand, two thousand dollar rig, you know, I was, you know, looking at something budget friendly because I knew I was going to have to put a bunch of money into storage. But like Wes said, like we have a fucking amazing community. It's it, it, like you can't put it down as an asset on a balance sheet, but it has got to be one of the strongest assets of this company because we had two different individuals step up and hook us up with incredible hardware 
that um, it is really, it, it changed the focus from like, how the hell are we going to afford this to like, let's get some storage and focus on the setup. Both of these servers that were donated to us are nicer than I would have bought. Right? No kidding. <laughs> like, you know, we could have got something decent, but not this. Yeah. And both servers, one came with no disk and one came with disk, but both servers ended up having 48 terabytes of total storage available. Ironically, like they both, that's where it worked out to be is 48 terabytes, uh, which is interesting because right now we have about 20 terabytes and we have two terabytes free in our current system. Uh, one is a set of spinning disks that I picked up from two different vendors on eBay. And the other came with 24 uh, low right threshold SSDs, but they're all SSDs. And man, is that a thing of beauty? Uh, so when we saw this, what we saw was a real opportunity here for us to play with disaster recovery and failover setups over time, especially not maybe so much from like an OS hot standby standpoint, but more like from a data recovery. For some of these really big, you know, archived files of productions and stuff that right now they're just, they're just not properly backed up because it's difficult to do so. Yeah, it's a lot of storage. So how do you do that? Um, and especially when you have a Comcast connection that has like a kind of crappy upload speed and stuff like that. So we're going to talk more about that. That's, that's more down the road. What we're going to focus on today is the box that has 24 SSDs in it. And that's going to be the first box we deploy in this because it's got some great CPUs in it. It has got a couple of Intel E5-2667 Xeons clocked at 3.6 gigahertz. And these are just beautiful CPUs. And there's 16 cores total here. And it has 755 gigabytes of usable RAM. Uh, it's just, we're using like something like 0.4% right now, just in the base setup. It's insane. Yeah, we're talking RAM disk here. We're going to be getting there. So it's an it's a Dell R730 XD and it's a hell of a box, but it was a little bit above my pay grade. Yeah, I got to say our community once again stepped up and joining us this Saturday, we had a listener who helped give the hardware once over and get things rolling. Just don't confuse them with Old Wes. My name's Wesley. Uh, I'll go by that. Just so that we're not uh, confusing me with uh, Wes Payne. Uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm kind of local here to the Seattle area. And when I heard Chris uh, say that he would love some extra help, I was like, I'm a guy who lives in Seattle, the Seattle area, and I would love to help you guys. So yeah, well, come come on down and see what I can do. I actually told New West, don't come. I said, don't show up. The roads are frozen. It's a two-hour drive from where you're at. Plus, we're having to get together on the 30th. Like, that's just too much work. That's crazy. Don't, don't come. It's, it's no, it's, it's just not, we're not worth it. Uh, but he didn't listen to me. He headed out. And uh, he really, really knows this particular line of Dell hardware in and out. So that worked out like perfectly because it's what he deals with his day job. No kidding. He could not ask for anything better. Now, um, Seuss, on the other hand, well... We're all kind of on the same page there. Yeah, I, I knew it was a distro. And that's about the level that I had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had some fun moments. I think that's how we feel sometimes, too. We're slowly learning. The net install had some learning curves Ugh. for us. Yeah. <laughs> we also chatted about how much of a great deal you can get from used server hardware. I think that is really um, the gold point here is all, everything we got is used. And yet it's still amazing for what we need to use it for. And uh, maybe something people should consider more often. 
Absolutely. It's very affordable because you got companies who, uh, you know, they, they go through their stock, uh, a third of their, their servers at a time, they do upgrades. Uh, and they're, they'll go for like 700 bucks, 800 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And they're ridiculously powerful for that too. Yeah, they also have a nice feature that I think we're excited about, IPMI, right? And uh, But New West wanted to warn us and tell us to be careful. Oh, yeah, IPMI is great. It's it's easily one of the best things about sort of inter, inter enterprise hardware. There There is a downside, though, of course, with, as with everything. Uh, it, there's a major security component there because uh, it's, it's, it's its own separate board before the rest of the motherboard. That's how you can turn the server on while it's off uh, is because it's its own ARM board that has the ability to control the server remotely. And so when you expose this over IP, right, which is how you want to for convenience, now you've got this huge attack surface that has the ability to control your entire box. That's definitely something we'll have to keep in mind. Mm, definitely. Because I think a big part of this for us was IPMI getting some kind of remote management. You can you really think of it as a computer inside your server. And so I think what we'll probably do is lock down what IPs can connect to it and that kind of stuff. Uh, but it also was why we did this, because if I had IPMI while I was on that road trip, I could have rebooted the server and got it back up and running again. And it wouldn't have been out for a few weeks. So just, I mean, a huge thank you to New West for making it all the way up here and helping us get the ball rolling on this. We really kind of needed that because I ended up way behind on getting this going because I got stuck out in the woods for a week longer than I intended to. So like I, the all the all the time after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, was when I was going to be working on it, and I I was stuck. And there were a lot of different moving pieces, which is why I was having extra hands around too, right? Because like, okay, there was the physical setup in the studio, getting that wired up, plugged into the network, up and going. Then there was actually getting the OS installed, yep. and we still needed to figure out like disk layouts and operating system configuration, and you know, all kinds of things. E- even just having his knowledge there on the BIOS, because he knew those BIOSes in and out and what we wanted to do with it. Yeah, that could have been a rabbit hole. We wasted way too much time on it. Right. And also, a big thank you to those of you who donated the hardware. Uh, Real Zombie Geek hooked us up with one of these awesome servers. That's the one we'll be telling you more about soon. We had an anonymous listener give us the one with the SSDs that we put into production now, and it's great for us because it allows us to just get to work and get back to making the shows and, and learning this stuff and be able to relay that to you guys. So let's talk about what we're excited about with this server. It's definitely IPMI. That's a big game changer for us, but there's a ton in this box. A lot of it we haven't even told you about. Linode.com slash unplugged. Boy, have I really just gained a whole new appreciation for Linode this week. I don't want to do any more of these. <laughs> these setting up an actual physical server is is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> just even the physical aspects of Rather it. Rather than just clicking a button in a web UI, perhaps. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if the power draw of that server is probably about the cost of a base Linode, right? But then that base Linode is going to be in their data center with their screaming fast connections and their awesome hardware and also, 11 data centers I could pick from. <laughs> Plus, uh, they can handle the backups if you want. Yeah. I mean, it's really just a whole other ballgame. And it's honestly why we have 98% of our infrastructure up on Linode. That's how we really deploy everything. Anything that the team uses, anything that our listeners interface with, that's what we use Linode for. But I hear from so many of you out there that have tried it out for something like NextCloud or replaced Zoom with Jitsi or have decided to migrate to GitLab and you put that on Linode. Just having that peace of mind that you've got the root password. You can make a backup when you want it. You can get your data when you need it. You can have full control over that setup. I think that's worth a lot. It's a kind of peace of mind or almost a stress that gets lifted off your shoulders 
when you move to that kind of setup. And then the great thing about Linode is they give you all the tools to manage that in a way that's not super complicated. It's not going to be overwhelming. So if you want to take steps in this direction, but you've never done it before, you're not going to get scared by their horrible interface or their complicated UI. Like I picture something like the big hyperscalers. That is its own ecosystem, right? That is its own language. That's its own tooling. There are people that can become specialists in those hyperscalers that can't do anything else. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just not where I want to invest my time. It's not where I want to develop my skill set. And it's also, it's, it's not going to enable me to use multiple cloud providers should I ever need to. And Linode then has all these great tools like APIs and command line tools that you can use as well or integrate with Kubernetes or Terraform. So it's just like, it's sort of sitting in this perfect spot for people that really are advanced with their infrastructure management or for people that just need a $5 Linode. And their pricing is 30 to 50% less than the major hyperscalers. So go try it out. Get $100 and really kick the tires. And you support the show. It's linode.com slash unplugged. You go there, you get $100 in 60-day credit, and you support the show. What a great way to start the year. Linode.com slash unplugged. Well, after New West put in a lot of hard work getting us all set up and configured, you know, the OS was installed. Then we realized, oh, right. We've got to set up this new disk array. And we hadn't really gotten quite that far in our planning. Yeah, this was tricky too, because we had to make a couple of decisions. And one of the things we seriously gave consideration to was doing everything in ButterFS. Traditionally, we have the root file system in ButterFS, and then we have the data pool in ZFS. And we thought this time, perhaps, we just ButterFS the entire thing. And we didn't really have like a hard line on like requirements. So we had to actually hash out, well, what do we actually want to do? How much storage do we actually want available? And by having that conversation, we kind of whittled it down to ultimately, well, we're going to actually end up using ZFS. You know, it was interesting though. It was a fun discussion and thought experience in some sense. You know, we it kind of showed what things, you know, what parts worked well in a, in a world where we, it was all on, on ButterFS and kind of unified some of the tooling we could have used. But you know, it came down to just the available features and the amount of the pool we could actually use. Because at the end of the day, if we just had the same amount of space, that's still an improvement. But we were going to run into issues down the road in 2022 that we would just have to immediately address. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we wouldn't have made it more than three months with what we have available on the current system. And with the price of storage right now, I just can't really see us being able to replace a bunch of those disks right away. Right. And so if we, you know, if we had kind of copied a similar setup, the current array was set up by Alan back in the day, and it's set up with a bunch of mirrors in the pool. Probably a sensible way to do it. Totally, yeah. You know, um, Alan and, and Jim over the years have shared a lot of great stuff. There's some good wisdom on how you might want to set up ZFS, in particular what kind of use case you've got and, you know, what uptime reliability and how, you, how much data protection you need. But with mirrors, you know, you're making a copy there. You have, you're mirroring that data over, and that means that you're only going to get 50% Right. Utilization. So we ended up with exactly the amount of free space our current system has. Yeah. And you, um, when we when we told you that, you looked over at the calculator and you weren't exactly happy. I'm like, we just can't do this. Like, I, it, we should, especially right. because these like are. We, we kept rating all the arguments. You know, we went and looked up all those all these kind of guides on like oh, oh, how yeah. to think about setting up your ZFS storage yep. and stuff, and be like, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, that argument. I can't. I can't say that's not good reasoning, right? I uh, I like uh, PM'd uh, Neil on Matrix last night. I'm like, Neil, what do you think about this too? Because we were in this. We were all sitting here in the studio trying to decide what to do about it. And you know, Neil, you threw out a couple options we could use to try to get some available storage out of a ButterFS setup, which was very helpful. Thank you for taking the time to do that. 
when we were talking about it, it was uh, the main constraint you had was you didn't foresee expanding your physical topology within this year, right? That was the constraint that you ultimately yeah. put down to me. And I said, the main concern you should make sure you think about is avoiding a topology which can lead to cascade disk failure. Because if you're relying, for example, on parity rate and you say, all right, I'm okay with accepting two disks failing, you have to make sure your RAID configuration is set up so that you reduce the likelihood that two disks will fail at the same time, right? And because you can't replace the disks and you can't afford and you can't figure out whether those disks were bought at the same time or if they're different times, you have to go with the worst case assumption that they were all bought at the same time. And that means that they will all fail at the same time when they get to failing. I expect that to be the case. You're right. So expect that to be the case and design it accordingly. Like I recommended, you know, for everyone else, if you're doing ButterFS, I recommend using a RAID 10 and using Z standard compression to increase the available space to be somewhere closer to what you would get with the RAID, RAID 6 arraignment because the RAID 10 configuration is less punishing to disks than the other options. With ZFS, you can do an equivalent configuration with the um, uh, you putting mirrors and then striping the mirrors on top because that's essentially what a RAID 10 is. It's a striped mirror. Yeah, yeah. But don't do yeah. RAID Z or parity RAID because with the higher density disks that exist today, the likelihood of cascade disk failure goes up. I have personally experienced this at work and in my home setups, and I basically don't use parity RAID unless I absolutely have to. So don't, if you can avoid it. Yeah. And to make it more poignant, these are low write SSDs to begin with. So they have a lower life cycle than an average SSD. So they will fail sooner than an average SSD as well. Right. And so like, this is where if you're using ButterFS and like what I told Chris, and I'll say repeat it again for everyone else is make a separate ButterFS pool for your data with your disks and configure it differently than how you would set up your OS pool so that it, it's optimized for those characteristics. So, for example, set it up so that discard is async. Set it up so you use Z-standard compression, probably at a higher compression level because you're willing to eat more CPU cycles in return for less I.O. on disk. Set it up with RAID 10. Make sure that, you're, that you've got you know, proper monitoring and alerting to catch you know, the warning signs quick. Those kinds of things. Thank you. That, and thank you for taking the time. That was, that's, that's some great advice. And that is exactly the kind of uh, rational setup everyone should follow. And uh, I want to be clear, what we ended up with is nowhere as good as that. And it is better than what we had on the whiteboard for quite a while, which was simply YOLO, and it was just a JBOD with no RAID at all, which we ultimately decided against. But what we chose um, seems a little more rational when you consider we, went, we considered no RAID at all. But I will also remind you that we have a server with the identical amount of storage that we have as a failover box. So that ultimately played a role in our decision. So we decided to go with ButterFS on the root, which is a hardware RAID 1 using the Dell RAID controller. It's got these two drive slots in the arse of the box back where the ports are. There's two disks in there that run the OS. Then we've got 24 solid state disks that are getting passed through on the controller. And we're going with ZFS. And because you should never do like what we do, we are doing RAID Z2. And like you should never do like we do, we're doing one big VDEV, which you should never do, especially with 24 discs, right? 
So we don't basically do it. tried to read all the advice we could get and then <laughs> not do it. I mean, that's. I mean, it seems pretty rational, right? I mean, no but you I, liked the number when we when we said you could get. We had like eighty two point five percent capacity. That was the number you. That's liked, I think, what right? it came down to, right? Is this migration just doesn't happen if we don't have more storage? So ultimately, we wanted as much storage available as possible. Uh, so we went with a parity raid, which we're really going to be screwed if we have a couple of more than two disks fail at any point in time. And uh, it's extra screwy because the time it's going to take to get a replacement disk will probably be about the amount of time it takes for a third disk to fail. So we're really kind of going down to the wire with the idea being that we have the second box that will have an identical copy of everything that we could do like a ZFS send to recover should we need. The IRC thinks we hate our data. Well, they might be right. I mean, we did almost YOLO this whole thing, right? You know, what's been fascinating to me watching uh, all of these discussions happen, Chris, is just your, hmm, the difference in your capacity to accept risk. <laughs> and it was basically Wes for a few hours just trying to bring you back from those <laughs> those cliffs there. So, um, you know, I'm not trying to, it's more just to make sure we presented the you know, facts as they may be. I appreciate it. So one of the things you kind of workshopped on your laptop was we were curious, like what happens if you just do a big ass ButterFS volume with 24 disks and a couple of those disks pop off? Like how does ButterFS handle that? So Wes kind of replicated that on a smaller scale on his laptop. Tell us what you did. Oh yeah, it's just fun playing around with um, ButterFS or ZFS. You can set up some loopback devices, you know, just make some raw some raw files you treat as disks with the loopback system in Linux, which is, is super handy to play with. You know, that's the mount-o loop option you may be familiar with. And then, yeah, you can set them up and then play with whatever type of RAID configuration you might want, right? Great way to start learning on ButterFS or CFS tooling without necessarily touching your real disks. Yeah, and no big loss if one of those loopback devices disappears and you want to see how the system Yeah, right, reacts. and that's also, so yeah, exactly. And then you can sort of modify things. You can just write arbitrarily to it without worry or take it offline entirely and see what happens. And, you know, ButterFS, it, it did it did degrade, but we would have had to do like a full restore from backup, which, you know, isn't, a, we should be able to do. Like, that's the point of having the backup. But ultimately, we decided that probably wasn't reasonable. So why only one VDEV? Because we did actually, didn't we initially do four VDEV six sticks? Well, so it's was, it was basically just trying to figure out what storage, right? It ended up being the storage capacity metric. Yes. And so if we were splitting it up, that that just meant there was there were more total parity disks. More parity disks, so there's less available space. But with the amount of disks we have, it actually would make a lot of sense to split it up into multiple VDEVs because then it kind of isolates like the rebuild degradations to that VDEV and doesn't screw with the entire Yeah, you can find some tips out there for, you know, just just how many you should stick to for the various raid levels and how you know how to take your total disks and place them up into VDEVs that'll perform nicely. And then there's also, of course, concerns around if you're trying to optimize for IOPS and stuff like that. That wasn't our concern in this case. But it gets complicated, and you you definitely shouldn't do like we're doing. Don't do it like we're doing. Now, here's something that you might want to consider. And we're going to just be honest with you on how this part goes. And we have we kind of have a luxury because the old server hasn't crashed recently. Doesn't mean we want to take our time doing this. But it means... Instead of just like whole hog picking up the Docker environment and dropping it on the new server, which was what plan A was. Yeah. Now we're thinking because they're both running, why don't we do a application migration to Podman? So we'll go from Docker in this, in this migration to Podman running on the OpenSUSE Tumbleweed in the new setup. 
we thought we didn't have enough to learn, you know, with a new server operating system. So uh, why not introduce something new into yeah, the mix? Right. But no, really, we've been, you know, I've been playing with Bob Man a little bit on the side. I think you have too. And it's, co- it's come a long way. It's been exciting to watch its development. There's a lot of stuff to like about it, especially with the uh, mixed sort of changes that the Docker desktop world has been seeing lately. So kind of felt like maybe this was just the excuse we needed to really see. You know, it's not, again, as we said, like there's some stuff that needs to run, but it's not exactly business critical day to day. So we can have a little time here to try to figure out and learn, frankly, learn a lot more about Bodman is also what we need to do here. And we have the luxury that the production implementation is still running. So uh, we're going to start with like a simple applications and then kind of work our way up. Eventually we get to a bunch of applications that are all kind of intertwined with a whole bunch of storage and all that kind of stuff. And that's where we're going to have to just move like three or four things at a time. But uh, I think, although we haven't actually, have we tried this yet? <clears throat> I don't know, because you might have been pl- plugging away with this before the show started, but we're thinking, because we were using the Docker ZFS driver on Arch, we have a sub-volume for each Docker container. Yeah, well, we've got, there's like, there's a lot of sub-volumes. Yeah. So there's both the layer of, there's the volume layer, and a lot of ours are set up on that setup, and then there's the sort of container storage layer for the images. And in the current setup, those are both on ZFS. And so should we just be able to ZFS send those to the new box? Yeah, so the application data, we, we can just, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be nice. And then it'll be a matter of starting the app in Podman and just connecting it to its moved data, hopefully. I mean, Podman's come a long way in some of the Docker compatibility, and I have not really used it in anger or in production. You know, I don't think either of us have. So that's, I think that's going to be what's interesting is to figure out what pieces move easily because we've tested a few simple apps in the new setup and they seem to be working just fine, but nothing with, you know, complicated interdependencies and networking and a whole bunch of state that we're trying to migrate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, but I think it'll be good to learn and try something new. And then we'll also be learning the tumbleweed tooling along at the same, same time. So there's quite a bit, actually. There's a lot of moving parts to it. It has been neat to see some of that integration, though. You know, like, um, for instance, uh, Podman has a ZFS driver, but it also has a ButterFS driver. And um, Tumbleweed has that set up for you out of the out of the box. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> and so it's just been interesting, as since we've kind of been, you know, like we hacked on Snapper to our Arch setup. And so it's one thing I'm excited to explore in this new world is just some, some of those pieces in a system that someone else has been thinking about how to compose those pieces and work with ButterFS and not just the stuff that we've come up with. Then phase two-ish, I suppose, after we get everything migrated, is going to be attacking this DR box. We have a couple of routes we could go there. We could do another tumbleweed box and just kind of keep them in sync. Or we could proxmox that machine and allocate a VM to be like a backup server and do like some cron jobs to ZFS send. I, I don't know if we have a complete picture of how we want to do that yet. Like one thing we're considering is like sync it up here and then Wes takes to his house and it runs there as an actual legit for realsies offsite backup. What an idea. That would be a big step up for that, uh, for that data. There is like some stuff that we've just decided, like if a disaster strikes, I guess we're just going to lose this because I mean, where, where do you want to pay for 20 terabytes of backup storage? And we're adding to it every single episode. Like it's just gets crazy, right? So this is a real solution for us now. So if you have ideas or suggestions, linuxunplugcom slash contact for that. Oh yeah. I'm sure you guys have some very clever ideas. Now that being said, uh, that seems like a pretty performant box to just be doing backups. Wes, do you think you'll have other plans for this thing? <laughs> yeah, we got it, right? Oh, we, something tells me we'll find some use cases. That's kind of why I was thinking Proxmox. Because right? like, you could have a lot of the storage and like a tumbleweed VM, and then you slice off like the other stuff. Because the other box that we're not using, it has four Xeons in it. And another like 
another like 700 gigs of RAM or something. Just a crazy amount of RAM. Something tells me it doesn't need all of those for copying bytes off the network. Mm -hmm. Especially when they're going to be coming over a Comcast connection. So it does make me think like uh, one of the things Wes and I were, were talking about is offloading the CPU video encoding that we do in the cloud right now to a bot to one of those boxes. They also, these Dells let you set power caps, which is fascinating. So you can say, just don't let the system use more than 600 Watts or something. That's pretty nice. I mean, you, maybe you don't always want that, but yeah. it's, it's cool to have some of these more, um, you know, customizable options down at the firmware level. I noticed a, an option in there while we were playing to cap it by BTUs as well, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah. I got to say the SSD box is quite enough that you could have it on your desk when it's not under load. That's been pretty surprising too, yeah. It's right? also big enough to be your desk. <laughs> That's true. It is a monster, and they're heavy. Uh, that is a thing. But uh, it's up and running. The migration is in progress. We're starting with like network test pinging applications, stuff that just is really simple but has obvious application data history so we can verify that the migration worked correctly. And then we'll start moving over the more integrated tooling, things like NextCloud and our production tools and workflow things and media stuff. And I imagine we'll have it probably done within a couple of weeks. I mean, we're, we're not in a rush, but once you get one or two of them going, it's just sort of rinse and repeat. Yeah, definitely. All right, then. How about a, just a spot of housekeeping? Thank you to our members, UnpluggedCore.com, and our network members at Jupiter.Party. It's now 100% ad-free feed or the live feed, which has a lot more show. You want more West Payne? That's where you get it. Right there. Right there. So thank you to our members. You get all our screw-ups. So you're welcome. <laughs> if you have feedback or ideas, segment ideas for the show, linuxunplugged.com slash contact. You can join our growing Matrix community at linuxunplugged.com slash matrix. Our Matrix server is colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. And, it, you know, if Matrix isn't your thing, we have a Telegram group. It's always going. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. We'd love to have you there. And don't forget... Our virtual lug meets on Sundays before the show, and we're going to be meeting on Tuesdays at the old showtime, too. So go get your mumble set up, which is actually Jitsi. This, that's yeah, just practice, practice both, right? You know, get mumble installed. Maybe get your mic working. For that's, goodness sake. Yeah. It's 2022. Probably also install like an audio editor, something something you can record your mic and then listen back to and make sure you sound all right. Yeah, Audacity. You there know? you go. It's free. Try it out. Goodness sake, it's 2022. Goodness sake. <laughs> We've gotten a lot of great feedback. Um, here's a quick one that we can get into. Uh, Bedrick wrote in, he says, Dear Linux Unplugged, you've talked about monetizing Linux desktop apps in Linux Unplugged 438. I would like to pay for applications I use, but I personally dislike the feeling of being forced to. My New Year's resolution is yet again to go over the open source projects I use and set up donations. What I would personally like to see is a tool that makes it easier to donate without the hassle with individual project payment details. I imagine a GNOME software welcome screen to set up credit card details as a Flathub account or something similar, and an auto-pay option with an opt-out possibility. This auto-pay option would be default, regularly pay the recommended price for all apps installed on my system that satisfy a few defined conditions. One, the app is already installed for some minimum amount of time, so longer than a trial period, for instance, and is used frequently enough to be useful, like at least once a year or something. Some additional configuration would be appreciated, like global and per-app configuration for the price as an absolute value or a factor of the recommended price. 
configuration of the trial period and usage frequency and some payment breakdowns. I feel like the Linux desktop community needs to feel in control and not be forced to. You know, I think we've seen various takes on some pieces of that. Nothing that's got, quite got all of it, or but more so really seems to have taken off. Yeah, uh, Open Collective comes to mind, but it doesn't mm. quite do it at this level. Um, Remember the days of, uh, what, Flatter, was it? Yeah, yeah, right. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a few out there. And I don't, I don't think I'd want something much like he doesn't want to feel forced to pay. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that take, but I I understand the sentiment. I wouldn't really want this to be a GNOME software solution. Try as I might, I still struggle to use GNOME software and I wouldn't want it to be something that only could be done in GNOME software. Now, Chris, you and I this morning were throwing around ideas around podcast networks and how they could monetize shows. Do you see any of that being applicable in this case? So next week, Dave Jones is going to join us on the show. And Dave works with the Podcast Index and Podcasting 2.0 initiatives. And one of the things Dave's going to talk to us about is how they use the Bitcoin Lightning Network to pay content creators. And the idea is roughly, he's going to tell us more about it, but from my rough understanding, you say you have a podcast app, an open source podcast app, and it's, it's got a Bitcoin wallet in there. And what you do is you throw like 30 bucks of Satoshis in that, in that wallet that's built into the podcast catcher. And then you go in there and you say, you know, you send this amount to Jupiter Broadcasting, you send this amount to, you know, name your favorite podcast. And kind of like you might with a Patreon where you can kind of subscribe at different tiers. And then what the, what the app does is it uses the Lightning Network to kind of stream Satoshis to the creator as you listen. So you set a you set a threshold and you set a total amount, and then based on your listening, it funds the creators you're actively listening to, which I think is a really interesting thing because it's it's uh, it's part of what they call a value for value model, and uh, it could be applied to free software as well. I would think um, I don't know if people want to pay by their hour usage of software, but there could be something in there that says. Hey, you know, you used this editor for eight hours this week or this month or this year. Or you launched it 28 times this month, something like that. Would you like to, you know, send the average amount and. Yeah, ways to lower that barrier in a practical way. Because so then, yeah, many of us mean well, right? But even, even when you are intentional enough to maybe think like, oh, yeah, year end things, I want to donate and such. Do you, you know, you might think about nonprofits in years, but how, how often are you also thinking of software? Like it just doesn't always easily yeah. happen if you don't actively do it. I like this idea of the Bitcoin wallet in the podcast app using the Lightning Network because it's all free software. The entire stack, even the payment system is free software. All of it. And yeah, there's scammers out there that use this same stuff, but that's true for cash and everything else. And so there's something interesting there about monetizing free software with a free software currency that tends to grow in value over time and doing it in a way that is transparent because everything on the blockchain is transparent. And so the project, by the very use of a blockchain payment system, is held accountable or a podcast network is held accountable. Right. Because it's all of the accounting is there on the blockchain. And there's something about free currency, free software and a public ledger that seems like there's probably some kind of, as they would say, synergy that we just haven't really fully explored yet. Do you feel like these tools are ready for prime time action, like the Lightning Network and. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So well tested and totally ready for us to take it on full speed. I mean, like with the with the podcasting index like that, that monetization systems been in practice for a bit now. Nice. 
yeah. Uh, so maybe you never, you never know. We could see something there or nothing. Absolutely. It all happens. And we still struggle to pay free software developers. Yeah, I mean, I think you're just trying to lobby to get people to implement your prediction. That's what's going on. Here. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I didn't work NFTs. You see, I, that was, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So uh, I have a pick that I feel like is the kind of pick you only really do on the show right after the holidays where people may have gotten a Kindle. So what I wanted to link in the show notes and, I know it's not for everybody, but it's a Kindle comic converter. It'll take like a, a JPEG or a PNG or a PDF of your comic that you might be reading, probably a Star Trek comic, and then it will convert it to a format that is readable on your new Kindle that you got without having to go through like some Kindle cloud or Amazon authorization. And it's simply called Kindle Comic Converter. We'll have a link to the website or we'll have a link to the FlatHub as well. Isn't the Kindle just one of those things? Like so many of those that were, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of open source behind it. And the device works pretty pretty nicely. I have one. I use it. I like ebooks, but it's just I'm so grateful for open source things like this that can put you a little bit more in control. Because otherwise, it's really very much feels like a locked in ecosystem. I wonder if I could find our old Linux Action Show Kindle review. That was pretty rough. Linux Action Show is the very first Kindle. Uh, yep, there it is. Thirteen years ago. There's us. I'm going to put a link to this. Uh, in the uh, end of the show notes, it's only well, it's only two minutes long. I think it was an outtake, so it's not the full review, but it's pretty bad. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Oh boy, I don't think I've seen this one. Twelve years ago, we were talking about the very first Kindle on the Linux Action Season show. two. Yeah, that was just after we started calling it Seasons, which I think was around a hundred episodes. I think I don't remember for sure. So it was like a hundred episodes in we started. Uh, the whole thing is definitely a, definitely a system that makes sense. Very foggy. It's very very foggy. I, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> well, thankfully you documented it, so you can review it later. I look back and I go, who are those people? Who are they? What are they talking about? Huh. And then every now and then I find myself agreeing with my past self, and I realize, oh, I'm just like a robot. If you give me the same input, I pretty much give you the same output. <laughs> Is that a good sign or a bad I sign? I don't know. I guess you're consistent. Uh, yeah, I suppose on some things. Although you can find some reviews of me really dogging on Butterfest and Fedora, so some things do change. And more, more recent ones about Seuss, now that I think about it. Uh, if you'd like more show, remember that we do have a lug that gets together every Sunday and now on Tuesdays at noon Pacific. If you're in the tech industry, make sure you're not missing LinuxActionNews.com. There's a lot going on there that doesn't make it into this show. But now we have a new same bat time. It's Sundays now at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. See you next week. Same bat time, same bat station. There you have it. Of course, the show will just kind of come out like a little bit earlier in the feed. So for most of you out there, just a little bit sooner. Linux Action News will be towards the end of your week now, so make sure you're at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for that. Links to the things that we talked about, which is not much. Not much, because it's, you know, it's a special episode. But we'll have those at linuxunplugged.com slash 439. Yeah? Anything else, gentlemen? No. It's been good. Good work, guys. We got ourselves a new server. Yeah, and a new day. (laughs) A new year. All right, everybody, thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Unplugged program. See you right back here next Sunday.
right, jbtitles.com. Let's go boat, everybody. Go pick your title. You got something there, bro? What you got? Uh, I'm, throughout all this discussion, I got really curious. Hmm. Two things, I think. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll throw them at you on a time. Go for it. So go you, for it. Okay. Number one, what's going to happen to the old server? Uh, well, we've uh, had someone who's uh, who's requested it, oh. so we might donate it to a listener. Oh, well, that's nice. That's um, like a full circle kind of thing. I yeah, like that. Yeah. So that's sort of plan A, although if they don't want it, then I don't have really figured out plan B yet. Right. But that's plan A. Okay. So I like plan all right. A. All right. Let's question two. Okay. Question number two. Um, it's a good question. How's Arch been? What's the debrief? Mm. Like, are you feeling like it did what it needed to? We should have done an Arch exit interview. Yeah, really. We should have done that because I think it worked better than we expected. And we thought it'd be okay, but I think it was solid as hell. And it's not going out of production because of any Arch issue. It's because the hardware is dying. Yeah, really, right. We could and, have kept this train rolling. The, the will of the community in yeah. our vote. And, yeah, and stepping up and, and, and saying, yes, you're going to go this direction in the polls. So we're doing it. Even though the lizards may have conspired to make sure the poll went their direction. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, you know, it was one of the, I've had a few personal arch servers or similar type things in the past, but I think this was the least, the lowest touch of those, you know, which is not generally necessarily maybe what you think of in the arch setup. So it was kind of a test of that kind of stability as well, because it was, you know, maybe monthly or maybe sometimes a little less <laughs> on those updates that yeah. we did. Someone can do the math. But yeah, I think that, that worked pretty well too. I mean, I think just to recap, what, what made it work well was, um, uh, we say it all the time, but ButterFS on the root and not ZFS because when the ZFS module a couple of, maybe three times on us failed to build or install correctly, we could still boot the, the that system. That could have been catastrophic otherwise. Uh, you fixed a little timing issue so that way ZFS got mounted before the containers start. Oh yeah, just you know, making sure that was going to play nicely together. Yeah, Because, you know, that's the thing about Arch is like there's no distro maintainer like, you know, kind of making sure that works. Like we had to figure that out on our own. Because sometimes the Docker containers would start and the pool wouldn't be available. And they'd be like, where's my storage? And then things would be broken. But the applications would be running, so it's not immediately available or obvious. Yeah, but like, you know, we tweaked that ages ago. Yeah, it, it just stayed. It just worked. It was yeah. never a problem again. And then um, uh, I think the LTS kernel helped. We weren't taking advantage of the cutting edge yeah, kernel features. Not right? in that box. If it got updated more than I expected, but it was point updates. And then I think, obviously, having our applications in containers and not, like, installed from the AUR or the Arch repository meant that the OS could pretty much roll independently and not affect the applications. And so we didn't have things like AUR installs breaking that no longer updated or anything like that. And I think that also contributed to being a successful Archbox. Are we going to do some occasional, like, Zipper uh, live updates? Oh, yeah, I think we should because... I mean, the whole thing is holding it accountable and if it, you know, and not sugarcoating if it breaks and not, uh, not to hiding if it's been a big success and if it's been really great and, you know, we have to own that, then we own it. Either way, I think we do it publicly as a, you know, as sort of a, an example of how to run something so you don't have to. Right. It's sort of how I always looked at it. Like, we'll try this and we'll try it with something that really matters to us. So that way you listening can do, do it the right way and don't do like we do. And I think there's some value in that. We've gotten quite a bit of feedback in the last several months of people saying, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, when I first caught um, some Linux Unplugged and the thing that really grabbed me was you guys doing live Arch updates. <laughs> We've gotten that so many times and it feels like it's both memorable and really valuable, perhaps. We'll see. Hopefully it's, been, hopefully it's also fun and valuable with the, uh, the SUSE setup. Um, and it, I actually, I could imagine if it, you know, if it actually failed on us, 
it would like wreck the rest of the show. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Just keep on doing the show? That's, and then, like, a, that's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. We're bummed out. Like at worst, like we stop the show and fix the server. And at best, we keep going knowing the server's busted and we got a big job after the show. Wes will just do like his tap dance routine to fill the uh, the extra waves that we got to fill we for probably, the show. You know, we should probably just set up a mic in the garage directly already. <laughs> <laughs> One of us just moves out there. And you better get your finger on the beat button. <laughs> right. <laughs>